Fantastic. Well, it is a real privilege to be here with our church family here in the morning site. Um, we miss you all, but we know God is doing some fantastic things amongst us as a church in all of our sites, including here in Manchester Morning. So great to see evidence of that as we've met with you this morning. Um, we're going to carry on looking at the Bible in a year. Who remembers which book we looked at last week? Ruth. Fantastic. You were listening. Great. So we're going to look at 1 and 2 Samuel today. So we're going to cover two books in the next uh, 20 to 30 minutes. So hold on. It's quite a lot to look at. But we've been looking, haven't we, at the story of the Bible and how our lives today are part of that story. You know, God's people throughout the Bible, that is our story, our people, the beginning of the church, God's kingdom unfolding, his covenant extending to a people. We saw in Genesis how God created the world and he created us as his people to dwell in it, to rule over it and to be fruitful. We saw the unfolding of God's covenant through Abraham and Noah and the establishment of God's people as a family in the stories of Isaac, Jacob and Joseph. Moses then led God's people from slavery into freedom and helped establish the law. He also helped God's people to see the importance of the presence at the centre of their life as a church family. The Ark of the Covenant, the presence of God was established as a key thing for them as a people. They had to keep their lives focused on God in worship and total obedience to God to be fruitful. And after the death of Moses and Joshua, we saw the book of Judges. And unfortunately, we saw how God's people forgot to worship God, forgot to obey. And basically, they went into decline. And it was a bit of a disaster, the book of Judges, if you remember that. And God raised up judges in the midst of that, men and women who would try and bring God's people back to that place of worship and the place of his presence. And they had a measure of success. But when each judge died, that cycle repeated again and again. And last week we saw that beautiful book of Ruth where we saw the story of a kinsman redeemer, a picture of Christ coming to redeem his people back to himself to create a family of his own. So today we move on to 1 and 2 Samuel. The author of these two books is unknown, um, but we expect that it probably was Samuel who, who wrote those stories. Um, and, and stories of Saul, Samuel and, and David uh, recounted throughout these two books. It's a story of Saul becoming king and then David becoming king. And how Samuel, as a prophet, was involved in appointing them and commissioning them as king, but also challenging them as a prophet. And Nathan, as a prophet, came towards the end of 2 Samuel. And we'll look at his story a bit in a moment. But let's turn to 1, chapter, 1 Samuel chapter 3 and verse 1. One Samuel chapter three and verse one, written in about a thousand BC. So that's the context of the history um, of this book. It says, "In those days, the word of the Lord was rare. There were not many visions." So we looked at Judges, didn't we? And the kind of mess that God's people got themselves into. And this is the context that the word of the Lord was rare. There were not many visions. A sad state of affairs that God's people were not hearing from him and there were not many visions. So this was the context of the book of Samuel. And Samuel um, was born in a miraculous way to his mum Hannah. And he was ministering um, in the temple as a young boy. 
And he heard God in a really powerful way. In 1 Samuel chapter 3, verse 1, he was asleep in the temple and three times God woke him in the night, Samuel. And every time he thought it was Eli, the priest, calling him. So off he trundled into Eli's room and said, here you are, here I am, Eli, you called me. And Eli's like, waking up from his sleep. No, it wasn't me. Go back to your sleep. It must have been God. And every time um, Samuel gets confused and thinks it's Eli, but the third time, I think Eli says, look, it really is God speaking to you. Go and listen. I mean, what an astounding thing to have heard as a young person. When the word of the Lord was rare, there were not many visions to be woken up in the night three times by God speaking direct. He obviously had something to say to Samuel that was going to then inform him and the future of God's people in that time. If you're a parent here this morning, you will know what it is to be woken up in the night. You could identify with Eli and, excuse me, and Samuel trundling in and saying, here I am Eli, what are you saying? Um, we've got three children, myself and my wife Rachel, and um, each of our children have had their moments, I have to say, at waking up in the night. And that's children, I'm sure I was the same when I was that age. Um, but our youngest at the moment, Joshua, is um, four and a half years old. And um, occasionally he does still wake up in the night. Um, and usually it's because he wants to tell you what he wants on his birthday list <laughs> or his Christmas list. Now, seeing that we're in February and his birthday is not till September and Christmas isn't until Christmas, it's getting a very long list. So at three o'clock in the morning, it's daddy, daddy, daddy. Off I go in. When it's my birthday, can I have this? So being woken in the night can sometimes be an unexpected experience and sometimes we don't react that well. But I want to really honour Eli because Eli was woken up by Samuel three times, must have been a bit grumpy, a bit sleepy, but he was tuned in to know that God was speaking. And praise God, in our lifetime and in our day, the word of the Lord isn't rare and there are lots of visions. Praise God. You know, God is speaking. That through us all, if we're filled with the Holy Spirit and we have a relationship with Jesus, we can hear God and speak to one another, speak to his people, speak to the world, his love and his grace. So God is speaking in our day. My challenge to myself and all of us today is, are we listening? Are we like Samuel and Eli who tuned into what God was saying eventually? Are we ready to listen to what God's saying and to act on that? And that was a key part of the start of the book of 1 and 2 Samuel, that Samuel heard God, got that commission, and then helped things to happen. So one of the key themes of the book of 1 Samuel is the establishment of a house in Israel. A house with a king. Um, God's people had pleaded with God for a king of their own, like all the other peoples of their time. And God had resisted and resisted and resisted. He was saying, well, I'm your king. I'm your Lord. Just obey me. But eventually Samuel pleaded with God and God relented and established a king for them. And Saul would be king, become the first king of all the tribes of, of Israel. But alongside establishing of a kingship, there was the restoration of worship and the presence. So we saw in, in Moses, in the law, the establishment of the temple and, and the Ark of the Covenant, all the detail that God went into. And in Judges, there's no mention of the presence of God at all. 
So they lost that sense of the presence and of worship. And God wanted to help as the kingship came in for worship to come back as a priority. Now, Eli's sons is just a little story at the start of 1 Samuel who again just typified what had gone wrong. Now, in the Old Testament, we know worship was done with animals that were killed and then um, um, sacrificed in a certain way. And that's how God prescribed worship to be. And one of the ways that those animals were killed by was by putting into a pot and there was a prescribed way at how they were killed and cooked and all those kind of things. There's lots of detail about that. But Eli's sons sort of circumnavigated that because they wanted to get the best of the piece of meat. And God really abhorred that because Eli's sons were trying to get their own gain and their own interest beyond the Lord. And they were criticized for that and God condemned that. And it's just another story of how God wants us to worship him and worship him alone in our lifetime, in our day. And there is a way that we're called to do that. Even in our day, we're called to bring a living sacrifice of worship. Our lives lived out in worship to him. That we can't just come any old how. That we come in holiness and in awe. By his grace, we can enter his presence. So the story of Eli's sons in 1 Samuel at the start there, 1 Samuel 3 and 4 and 5, is a lesson for us all even today. So the purpose of these two books is to describe two major events. The establishment of the monarchy in Israel in chapters 8 to 12 in 1 Samuel and the rise of David to be king after Saul in chapters 16 to 31. Samuel chose um, Saul to be king. He was the head and shoulders. He was handsome. Um, He stood out from the crowd and he was appointed king in Israel. But God um, rejected Saul in favour of David. And although Saul stayed on the throne until his death in chapter 31 at the end of 1 Samuel, the rise of David kind of overlapped with Saul. Um, Because God soon realised that Saul wasn't a man to lead his people. And we'll see why in a moment. Because of the lack of character and the lack of worship that he had in his heart. See, the book of Samuel establishes a principle that we have to be obedient to God. That is the necessary condition for any leadership, for any king, for any ruler. So the key question for God's people was not if they had a king or not is what kind of king they had. And the rest of 1 and 2 Samuel is an interplay of Saul and David and a comparison of their qualities. Now, David was no perfect king by any stretch. He had his moments, he had his mistakes. But at the heart of his rule and his reign was a man after God's own heart who wanted to worship God with all he had and God honoured him for that. And God used um, Samuel to appoint both the kings and to speak into their lives. Because at many different times, the kings got it wrong. And there's a lesson for us that in any leadership or any rule or authority, we can't just go off and do it on our own. We need people alongside us, challenging us, holding us to account, working in team. And that applies in the church, it applies in the city, it applies in the nation and this world. Leadership on its own is dangerous. And when Saul and David both fell, you can see that they were going off on their own, doing their own thing, not listening to God and not listening to the prophets, Samuel included, who were challenging them in many different ways. 
So a key theme of 1 Samuel is establishment of God's kingship. And those kings, those earthly kings, were meant to rule on behalf of God with his people. And there are moments in 1 and 2 Samuel where we see that working beautifully, but it's not the full picture. But it's an illustration of why we needed Jesus and why we still need Jesus as our king and as our Lord. One of the other themes of 1 Samuel is God's guidance and his provision for his people. That he individually guided the lives of chosen people. Hannah, a beautiful picture at the start of 1 Samuel of a mother crying out to God for a child. And God granting that request and Samuel being born. And Samuel then being used in 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 the lives of David and Saul. But that God's sovereign will and power is evident in the lives of his people. His choice, his will, his power can make a difference. And his decisions are always just and right. But in the midst of those things, we sometimes don't always see the full picture. I imagine when Saul was established as king, I bet the people were like, fantastic, this guy looks great. You know, handsome, tall, strong. You know, he was the leader and the commander of the army. But God knew that actually in his heart, he wouldn't be able to fulfill that rule and his reign. So he is merciful and gracious. He didn't just wipe out his people. There was another chance for David to take things on and David to take the God's people forward and to establish a house, a dynasty of his presence that would be what we now enjoy today. That aspect of God's grace is so important to remember in the Old Testament because we see so many times, don't we, of God's people messing up, forgetting their history, forgetting who God is, doing their own thing. And if if I was God, I'd be getting very frustrated that God's people are just doing their own thing. But over and over again, God in his grace and his love brings up another leader, another chance, another opportunity for God's people to make it. And praise God, they did. With all the ups and downs and with all the twos and fro's, they made it to a point Um, throughout the Bible when Jesus came to save his people and establish his church in the New Testament. So the Old Testament is our story. It's our history. And if we don't learn from history, honour history, respect history, we are doomed to repeat it. So this book is our history, but it's our lessons to take forward into our lives today. 2 Samuel goes on with similar themes to the book of 1 Samuel, But it's the story of David's life emerging and developing and his kingship being described. We're going to look at the book of 2 Samuel chapter 7 in a bit more detail because it illustrates um, the, the, the house and the rule that David wanted to lead in. Like I said, he wasn't perfect from a human point, from a human perspective. But the Lord was with David and showed grace to him. And allowed him to rule in that way. So let's look at 2 Samuel chapter 7 and verse 1 to 29. So the context of 1 Samuel, just a quick summary before we get into this. Um, Samuel was born. We saw that. He pointed um, as as a prophet. Heard from God in his sleep. 
He then appointed Saul. Saul then ruled um, over God's people. There was lots of things that went wrong, really. Um, And Saul didn't obey God. He didn't worship God the way that God wanted him to be. So God rejected Saul. David was born, and there was an overlap between David um, and Saul. David had lots of opportunities to kill Saul. He didn't. Um, But we see stories in 1 Samuel of David emerging as as a leader who God's people could follow. David and Goliath, fantastic story uh, in 1 Samuel that illustrates that. But here in 2 Samuel, um, verse 7, we see the full story. So I'm going to read um, the whole chapter just to give us an illustration of what we've read so far. 2 Samuel, chapter 7, verse 1. It says, After the king was settled in his palace and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies around him, he said to Nathan the prophet, Here I am, living in a house of cedar, while the ark of God remains in a tent. This is David speaking. Nathan replied to the king, Whatever you have in mind, go ahead and do it, for the Lord is with you. But that night the word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying, Go and tell my servant David, this is what the Lord says. Are you the one to build me a house to dwell in? I have not dwelt in a house from the day I brought the Israelites up out of Egypt to this day. I have been moving from place to place with a tent as my dwelling. Wherever I have moved with all the Israelites, did I ever say to any of their rulers whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now then, tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pasture, from tending the flock, and appointed you ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and I have cut off all your enemies from before you. Now I will make your name great, like the names of the greatest men on earth. And I will provide a place for my people Israel and will plant them so they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people will not oppress them anymore as they did at the beginning. And I've done every time the since I appointed leaders over my people Israel. I will also give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with a rod yielded by men, with floggings inflicted by humans' hands. But my love will never be taken away from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. Nathan reported to David all the words of this entire revelation. Just before we go on to the next bit of this chapter, there's a lot of overlap there with God speaking to Nathan about David, but also David being a type of Christ in the future. And that's one big thing that we learn in the book of 2 Samuel, how Samuel is a type of Christ in his leadership. He wasn't perfect like Jesus was, but a lot of his rule and his reign and the way that he established his kingdom was a covenant that we would see fulfilled in Christ. And Jesus comes from the line of David. David's prayer then, verse 18 of chapter 7. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord and he said, Who am I, sovereign Lord, and what is my family that you have brought me this far? And as if this were not enough in your sight, sovereign Lord, You have also spoken about the future of the house of your servant and this decree, Sovereign Lord, is for a mere human. What more can David say to you? For you know that your servant, Sovereign Lord, for the sake of your word and according to your will, you have done this great thing and made it known to your servant. 
How great you are, sovereign Lord. There is no one like you, and there is no God but you, as we have heard with our own ears. And who is like your people Israel, the one nation on earth that God went out to redeem as a people for himself, and to make a name for himself, and to perform great and awesome wonders by driving out nations and their gods from before your people, whom you redeemed from Egypt. You have established your people Israel as your very own forever, and you, Lord, have become their God. And now, Lord God, keep forever the promise you have made according to your servant and his house. Do as you promised, so that your name will be great forever. Then people will say, the Lord Almighty is God over Israel, and the house of your servant David will be established in your sight. Lord Almighty, God of Israel, you have revealed this to your servant, saying, I will build a house for you. So your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. Sovereign Lord, you are God. Your covenant is trustworthy and you have promised these good things to your servant. Now be pleased to bless the house of your servant that it may continue forever in your sight. For you, sovereign Lord, have spoken and with your blessing, the house of your servant will be blessed forever. A great chapter, a lot in that, that talks about what David wanted to establish and how God spoke to him from Nathan to help him achieve that. So just to recount, the book of 1 Samuel is a book of transition from the period of the judges to the period of the monarchy. It opens with Samuel's birth and then describes, describes his role as a judge over Israel. When the people ask for a king, the Lord instructs Samuel to anoint Saul as Israel's first king. In 2 Samuel, it recounts David's reign over Israel and his battles to establish Israel as the dominant power in Syria and Palestine. David expanded Israel's borders from small, small, Saul's smaller territory into many different areas in that time. So when Saul was king, God's people were a bit of a mismatch of tribes and there wasn't a coherent rule. But David brought unity to God's people and was able to lead them as one people for the very first time. And here in this 2 Samuel chapter 7, we've just seen how David's heart cry was to follow after God and establish his house, his rule, his reign in his lifetime. But just going back to what I said at the start, one of the key relationships in 1 and 2 Samuel was the prophet and the kings. Samuel, the major prophet, and then Nathan came along in 2 Samuel to uh, speak to David and to particularly challenge David when David, at one of his lowest points, committed adultery with Bathsheba. Again, David, when he should have been out at battle, stayed at home on his own and got himself into a mess and committed adultery and didn't just leave it at that. He then arranged for Bathsheba's husband to be killed. So he was guilty of manslaughter. And he knew that. And Nathan knew that because God had spoken to him. So Nathan came to challenge David. David at first refused it and then realized the error of his ways. And Psalm 51 is the whole psalm of David's repentance at that point in 2 Samuel. But what these stories of the prophets and the kings interacting do show us, that leadership needs to hear the voice of God to succeed at the start of its leadership, during its leadership, and at the end of its period of leadership. It needs to hear God of when to succeed. You see, God had spoken to Saul in 1 Samuel about his kingship ending, and he held on, and he held on, and he held on. And he wouldn't pass on and succeed his leadership to David. He refused without 
God speaking to him. You know, we see in the story of David and Goliath a, a more well-known passage in, this, in these books, how David heard from God that actually this Philistine giant was defying the people of God. He was defying the word of God and David couldn't let that stand. And a young shepherd boy from the fields heard from God. His passion was uh, you know, instilled to go and defeat Goliath. And we know that he did that with some stones in his sling. He heard God and he exercised that leadership even before he was king in seeing Goliath slain. And that galvanized God's people that they knew they could defeat the Philistines. They were a picture of things that were against God, basically. Um, the Canaanites and the Philistines were tribes that were against God, who worshipped other gods. They worshipped Baals, and God wanted them to be driven out so his people could establish the land. Kingdom leadership should never exist in isolation. David and Bathsheba is a terrible story of how David was on his own and he was distracted. But we see with both David and Saul that when they did their own thing, when they went off on their own, they got into trouble. But when they stayed hearing God, connected in worship, into the temple, submitting their lives before him, hearing from the prophets, they were able to lead God's people the way he intended. So leadership should always be accountable at all times. And Nathan in 2 Samuel was a, a prophet who kept on challenging David in his leadership and his rule and helped actually David to pass on his leadership at the end of his life in a better way than Saul did. So once Saul had died, David then became king and he was described with a heart after God. What a fantastic description that we see in Acts 13 verse 22. Let's just read that if you want to turn to the New Testament. Acts 13 verse 22. Acts 13 verse 22 says this, After removing Saul, he made David their king. God testified concerning him, I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. What a fantastic description. A man after God's own heart. He had his failings and from a human perspective, we see those in stark contrast. But God still said, he's a man after my own heart. And I just really believe for us today that for all of us, we've come to our place in our walk with Jesus. And we may have made many mistakes in our past. And, we've, and we want to bring those to Jesus and ask for his forgiveness and allow him to redeem those and to help us place in a place of holiness and purity and righteousness. And God, by his grace through Jesus, can do that. You may not know Jesus today, and that offer is there for you, that you can know Jesus through repentance and faith, through the waters of baptism, and know that relationship with him. But we can be a people after God's own heart. That is our inheritance. We can worship him. We can be a people after his heart if we follow his will and go after his kingdom with everything we have. I want the epitaph of my life, like David, was to be a man after God's own heart. You know, what do you want people to say about you in your lifetime today and at your funeral and after you have gone? What legacy do you want to leave? If Jesus doesn't return in our lifetime, what legacy do you want to leave? 
David left a legacy of being a man after God's own heart, a legacy of worship, a legacy of leadership that when it listened to God, it succeeded. Between him and Saul, there was many um, similarities. They were both handsome men. They were both, um, you know, they stood out amongst the crowd, particularly Saul. He was described as he was head and shoulders above his compatriots. Um, you know, so there was some earthly qualities that they were picked for in their leadership. But ultimately, God looks at the heart. And that's what God said to Samuel. He said, man doesn't look, God doesn't look at outward appearance. He looks at the heart. Man looks at outward appearances, but God looks at the heart. And today, God looks at our hearts. We're all here, different shapes, sizes, backgrounds, ethnicities, gender. It's fantastic. This is the church. It's beautiful. It's wonderful. And I look out and I see a fantastic, beautiful church. But God ultimately looks at our hearts. Are we devoted to him? Do you want to follow after him with everything we have? God looks at the heart. And that's what I want to do in my life. You know, it says in 1 Samuel 10, verse 22 to 26, that when they went to find Saul, he was hiding in the baggage. He was hiding amongst the supplies. When the going got tough and there was decisions to be made, Saul went AWOL. He went absent without leave. He, he went missing. He couldn't be found. And that characteristic of ducking the big decisions was ultimately what cost Saul because he couldn't hear God and implement those. But David, we see that when he fought Goliath and when he established other things in his rule and his leadership, he was able to do that. So David was a man of kingdom and covenant, a man of the kingdom, a man after God's own heart. And that's how we can be a people after God's own heart, to worship him as king, to seek first his kingdom and establish his covenant amongst us as a community, but to take the blessings of that covenant into our city and into our world. The provision of his covenant that we have, that relationship, that love, that security, that peace, all the things that Rian led us in earlier that we can say about our God was never meant just to stay in the church, but was meant to bless a world. Yes. That the blessing of his covenant was meant to go beyond the four walls of a building into a community, into a city. And that was seen in first hand in 1 and 2 Samuel. David restored the place of worship. He restored the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant had had a checkered history. It had been stolen by the Philistines. It wasn't mentioned in Judges. But David got hold of the Ark and began to build the temple in Jerusalem as a place for the Ark to be rested, a place where God's people would go and worship. And when the Ark of the Covenant was restored to the place in Israel, in Jerusalem, um, David did something, really silly, did something very strange. He danced before God and he danced so strongly that all his clothes came off. Um, I think he still had his undergarments on. But he basically danced before God in his underwear just because he was so passionate about worship being restored and the Ark of the Covenant coming back into Jerusalem. And his wife at the time despised him for that. She said, why are you worshipping in that undignified way? And David said, I will become even more undignified than this. Now, how more undignified can you become than worshipping in your underwear? I won't, we won't go there too far. But the heart of that was he wanted us to go all out in worship for Jesus. And I know we still, in our lifetime, got more to establish in that area. And I challenge myself in that, 
that I want to become even more undignified because it's just all about Jesus and his kingdom and his life being loved in my life and honouring him. Not caring what other people think, not in a nasty way, you know what I mean, but actually our cares and our concerns are for God and his kingdom. So when the Ark of the Covenant was established back into Jerusalem, it established Jerusalem as an important place in the history of God's people. It would ultimately be the place of the temple being established and where worship was seen to take place in the Old Covenant. But it would also be the place where Jesus would die and he'd rise again. But also the place where the Holy Spirit was poured out. Jesus wept over Jerusalem as a picture of weeping over his people, not knowing the relationship with the Father. So Jerusalem comes up all the way through the Bible and there's lots that we can learn in our modern time about the church, about God's people, not restricted to geography now, but God's people all over this world and how God wants us to continually know that salvation and that outpouring of the Holy Spirit. But I believe that the cry of Jesus over the church is that we would still know that relationship with the Father in worship, in grace. So the life of King David in 2 Samuel, at its best, is a type and a shadow of Jesus. David starts to point us towards the king who was to come, to redeem his people, to save his people. And one of the key verses that I think we can, the last verse we'll look at today, is in 1 Samuel 15 verse 22. Let's look at that. So earlier I talked about Eli's sons who stole the meat from the melting pot when the sacrifices were being prepared and how God really despised that. But God actually was starting to see that actually um, burnt offerings um, was actually not going to meet what he needed. Actually those physical outward signs of sacrifice and worship were not enough. And in 1 Samuel 15, verse 22, we see um, a shadow of things to come in our worship that actually the killing of bulls and goats and rams and animals in sacrifice would end. And actually what God really wanted was living sacrifices, people's hearts devoted to him in obedience. And 1 Samuel 15, verse 22 says, Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much in as obeying the Lord. To obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed is better than the fat of rams. So God's people had been told in lots and lots of detail about how to sacrifice the rams, how to sacrifice the animals, how to do that to please God. But God was hinting at something here that actually what is actually even better than sacrificing all those animals is a heart devoted to Jesus, a heart in obedience to the Father, that actually obedience in our daily lives, in every moment, is what true worship is all about. It's not a yearly event. It's not a sacrifice that we bring even once a week. It's a daily, momentary life lived in obedience and love with Jesus. And this verse is repeated many times throughout the Old Testament. It's a key verse to knowing that what God always wanted was a people lived in love and obedience to him. And David typified that. Not all the time, but when he did, it was beautiful and it was fantastic. 
So what can we learn to take away from 1 and 2 Samuel? It's so important that we hear God. God is speaking, but are we listening? And can we hear God and apply that in our lives, even when God may wake us up in the night? Can we obey God? Can we not just hear his word, but apply that and obey that? Can worship be the thing that we go after every single day of our lives? The books of the Old Testament rise and fall on how God's people understand worship. And I would suggest that our lives and our church community rises and falls on how much we understand of worship unto Jesus. And to ensure that we don't get distracted and that we don't get led astray, we need to stay connected. Saul and David went astray when they let things distract them, when they let other things get in the place of that relationship with God, but also with his people, that God was establishing a people, prophets, other people around these kings. And at times they ignored that to their own detriment. So can we stay connected to one another in his church, with the ministries in the church, prophets, pastors, teachers, apostles and evangelists that help us and shape us and equip us to be the people of God that we're called to be? Can we stay connected and hear from God with one another as we worship God as his people? Let's just pray as we close. Thank you. Lord God, we thank you for these books. We thank you that they are our history. And Lord, we want to learn from that so that we don't repeat the mistakes of our history. But Lord, that we learn the lessons of how you worked with your people to establish a kingdom, to establish a covenant, to establish a place of worship that would lead people into a truer and deeper relationship with you. Lord, help us to apply what we've learned in our lives today so that your kingdom and your rule and your worship can be established in your church but also flow from your church to a city and a world. That this world would see your kingdom in your church. That this world would see your love, your obedience in how we live and work together as a community. Thank you, Lord, that we can be a people after your own heart. So, Lord, I just thank you for this amazing community of men and women. And right now, would you just speak into all of our hearts and speak about the legacy of what we want to live in our lifetime, what we want to be known for, what we want people to say about us. And Lord, we want to be a people after your own heart that will do whatever you tell us to do for your glory and the establishment of your kingdom in our lifetime here in this city. We thank you for speaking to us today. Amen. Amen. Thank you.